Hi, this is Tzvi Freeman for Chabad.org. You may have read some of my articles on the site or seen some of my books. But for now, I want you to just sit back and let me turn your world on its head. The Baal Shem Tov wanted to lift Jews up and keep them tied to God, to Torah, and to one another in a tight bond. So he spoke to them, and his words lit up their hearts, as did his students, as did all the tzaddikim and rebbes of the Hasidim after him. As all the great leaders of the Jewish people had done all the way back to Abraham, they spoke words from the heart that entered into the hearts of the people. The people returned to God and to his mitzvahs. Until we came to America. And then there was a tzaddik who did things differently. Instead of struggling for the right words to pierce into the heart of a Jew so that she will light Shabbat candles, or he will wrap tefillin, or some Jew somewhere will affix a mezuzah to a doorpost. He told his students, just do it. Start with a mitzvah. Deal with questions later. Tell the Jew, you're a Jew, wrap tefillin. It won't hurt. What have you got to lose? The same with Shabbat candles or a mezuzah or put a coin in a charity box. Choose for a whole set of action mitzvahs. There's plenty of them. Get straight to action. Once the Jew has done one mitzvah, he or she will be open to more mitzvahs and even to learning some Torah. Or maybe not. But is one mitzvah not a mitzvah? Where did such a strategy come from? So some will say the Rebbe was a brilliant psychologist. Think it through. Before that lawyer on Fifth Avenue wrapped those black leather boxes on his arm and head and a Chabad mitzvah tank, how was this mitzvah framed in his mind? Superstitious ritual, bizarre, archaic practice, senseless form of prayer from the Dark Ages. But now he's walking away from that experience thinking, I'm not superstitious, neither am I bizarre, archaic, or senseless, and I rapped to fill in. Obviously, there must be some sense to this practice. So the try-it-first model turned out to be a personal paradigm shifter for a whole lot of people many decades before the in-app purchase model evolved. But no, that's just us little minds reducing greatness into clever tricks. If it were really that simple, how is it that no one had done it before? The popular, very influential treatise, Chinuch Mitzvah, composed in the twilight of Spanish Jewry, is entirely built on the thesis that a person's attitudes, I'm quoting, a person's attitudes are formed by his actions. So it would have been a simple step for any thinking leader to take the next step of start by just doing. So another explanation. While others focused on long-term goals and broad communal projects, the Rebbe had the wisdom to value every single mitzvah done by any individual Jew. Rabbi Yol Khan, the Rebbe's oral scribe, more than anyone sensed the inner thread behind the Rebbe's words. He wrote that 
Even if all the action on the street, all the tefillin wrapped, the Shabbat candles lit, the mezuzahs affixed on doors, even if it had not resulted in a flood of returnees to the tribe and an unprecedented rejuvenation of Jewish practice, which it did, even if it had all stopped there with those isolated mitzvahs, it would still have been a thousand percent worthwhile. Because a mitzvah is a mitzvah. That's certainly the attitude of those engaged in these mitzvah campaigns to this day. The thousands of Chabad agents across the globe racking up one mitzvah at a time. If someone takes the next step, fantastic. If not, is not a mitzvah a mitzvah? The approach is both profound and effective, but but it remains difficult to understand in what way is it new and why it only came to the foreground in our times. 2,000 years earlier, the Mishnah declared, a single moment of return and good deeds in this world is more beautiful than all the life of the world to come. Maimonides declared that every person must see himself and the entire world in such a delicate balance that any one mitzvah could tip him and the entire world to the side of merit. The first Rebbe of Chabad, Rabbi Shner Zalman of Liadi, wrote that the unity created between your soul and God by any single mitzvah is an eternal union. So a mitzvah was always the most precious thing in the world, no matter how small, no matter how infrequent. What changed now? So a simple explanation is just wasn't possible before. It would have been absurd. Does a Jew in Heinrich's Berlin or Mahler's Vienna, who's enthralled with Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, approach him on the street and ask him to wrap to fill in? There's a Jewish shoemaker in Peretz's Warsaw who enjoys the Yiddish theater and decides he has to open his door on the holy day of Shabbos to make a few more groschen to feed his family. Go ahead and ask him if he's checked the mezuzah on the door of his shop. Even if he agrees, will it change his life? There's Cindy Goldberg slaving at the stitching machine at a shirt factory in Lillianwald's Manhattan. Tell her she should give the, the mikvah a try. You might as well tell her to go back to the shtetl in Poland. But travel forward in time, to 1967, to the midst of a cultural revolution on the streets of America. Grab a Jew out of a confusing, rapidly shifting world, a Jew whose knowledge of Jewishness may not extend much further than Bagel's Lux, Israel, and the Holocaust. Tell him, just roll up your sleeve and wrap on these leather boxes. He's open which is to say that the Rebbe was with the times. As some pundits have commented, the Rebbe's grasp of what America is all about was far ahead of those rabbis who were trained in the American seminaries. And once it worked in the USA, as with Hollywood airplanes and superheroes, it was a natural step to export it to the rest of the world. Okay, fascinating observation. But it just shifts the question to a glaring irony. How does it happen that a Ukrainian rabbi of a Hasidic sect called Chabad is the one to bring Jewish practice to the American street? Chabad, those well-established as the cerebrally oriented, highly learned and erudite Jews, scrupulous in their observance of halacha, who stood for hours in meditation and prayer, yearning to cleave their souls with the infinite. Indeed, the word Chabad is an acronym for Chochma, Bina, Dat, 
meaning wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. In what bizarre twist of historic irony does this become the army of candle holder distributing, letterbox street wrapping, backslapping, fundraising, go out and do it, mitzvah entrepreneurs? It's a question that bothered the elder generation of Chabadniks as well. Rabbi Khan, fondly known by his students as Rebuol, had his explanation. He saw it as an organic outcome of a long progression, reaching its near-ultimate natural fulfillment. Chabad, he explained, is all about bringing the divine and transcendental down into the mind, even the very human mind, and from there into the heart. That was Rabbi Schneer Zalman's goal, to employ the metaphor of human psyche so that the infinite and ungraspable could enter the finite world of human experience and from there awaken love, awe, and longing that would burn as a bright light within every word of Torah we would learn and every mitzvah we would do. In each generation of the seven generations, the seven Rebbes of Chabad and their Hasidim labored to expand and develop the rich store of metaphor and hasbara that they had inherited. Meditations, their labor and struggle with their own inner selves, their lectures and lessons to their students, all centered on the task of bringing it down and yet further down so that even a Jew of moderate intellectual capacity could be earnestly inspired by these divine truths. So ultimately, the time came when the infinite divine wisdom had to come all the way down to the street. The mitzvah tank is really the most exquisite expression of Rabbi Schneer Zalman's original vision. There's got to be something more to Rabbi Yol's explanation than seen at first read. Because if this were the entire explanation, we would be revealing mystic secrets to the corporate lawyer as he's wrapped in that black leather. And yes, there are those who that do just that. But it was never the focus, and it was never presented as the focus in the hundreds of public talks in which the Rebbe charged us to get out there. The focus was, love your fellow Jew. Assist them to do a mitzvah. Every Jew wants to do a mitzvah. Find which one. Here's ten. Pick one. Do it. And quite evidently, it was the shock of, I just did what? More than any lucid explanation or revelation of Kabbalistic secrets that shifted minds and hearts. Something awakened inside. Something no words could possibly have touched. Otherwise, why on earth is this coldly rational career lawyer enacting an ancient tribal ritual on a street corner. This was not the next point on a continuum. This was a quantum leap, a whole new experience. It was, and it was a reversal. The whole system had been turned on its head. Go back to the rabbis of the Mishnah, those who stood the Jewish people back on their feet after the destruction of Jerusalem and a series of genocidal Roman massacres. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Tarfon, and other great stages of Israel sat in the home of a man named Nitza in Lod. The object of discussion was crucial to establish who we are as a nation. The rabbis asked, which is greater, the study of Torah or acting upon it. 
Rabbi Akiva, the activist, the returnee who had spent the first 40 years of his life in ignorance, said, study is greater. Rabbi Tarfan, a scion of an ancient line of learned priests, said, action is greater. All the others responded in a resounding consensus, study is greater because study brings to action. And that was Jewish life for the next two millennia. As historians Maristella Batticini and Sviekstein demonstrate in their painstaking research recorded in The Chosen Few. That's the title of the book, The Chosen Few. Those who sent their children to school each morning, who spent their own mornings and evenings in the study hall poring over the accumulated texts and commentaries, their grandchildren remained within the tribe. Those who just couldn't make the investment in most cases, faded into the dominant cultures of the nations that had swallowed us alive. So that is who we became, how our sages and God's hand in history forged us, a people sustained by study of a Torah that taught us how to live, to act, to do, learn, and then you will do. And yet, if the Rebbe had have been there at that meeting, I can hear his voice quietly and calmly noting, in my generation, action is greater, because action brings to learning. And he would describe how the Fifth Avenue lawyer, as the leather straps of fulfillment were peeled off his arm, asked the rabbinic student, are there any classes in Talmud I could attend during the lunch hour around here? Abruptly, in the second half of the 20th century, the Jewish paradigm was turned backwards, its head to the ground and its feet ruling supreme, and particularly by that Hasidic group that ideologically valued intellectual pursuit above all. Brilliant yeshiva graduates became kosher lunch caterers. Scholars of Talmud and philosophy became youth leaders. Yes, to express genius in action, that's one thing. But here the focus became just action, action, action. The truth is, there was no paradigm shift at all. Just a tighter focus on the original target. Chabad had always been about getting to the essence of things, the essence of Torah, the essence of a Jew, the essence of God. When you get to the essence, the highest things can reach the lowest places, and the lowest things rise to the highest places, because at the essence there is no higher and lower. So this was the Rebbe's insight, that now in post-Holocaust modernity, when hearts had shriveled and shrunk, spirits had run dry, and souls tumbled around like sagebrush without roots to lay down. Now it had become possible to access the core of a Jew's soul. In the Jew on the street, devoid of the cultural context of the old world, free of the intellectual baggage of Europe, the essence had become eminently accessible. Not through an idea, not through an emotional appeal, through a plain and simple, just do it mitzvah. Because when it comes to the essence core of the soul, of Judaism and of God, action is the point of access. And action is where everything begins. The Baal Shem Tov's name was Israel, 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 son of Eliezer and Sarah. Rabbi Pinchas of Koretz, 
one of his closest disciples, used to say that the life of the Baal Shem Tov was God whispering the name of the Jewish people into their ear. Yisrael. That's a Jewish practice. When someone has fallen into a deep coma and fails to respond to any stimuli, you whisper their Hebrew name into their ear. Even if the mind and heart are sleeping, the essence is still awake, and hearing your own name gently mentioned into your ear can awaken that essence. Once the essence is awake, everything comes awake, because your essence is the essence of all of you. Rabbi Schneir Zalman wouldn't settle for anything less than the essence. His grandson told of the times he witnessed his grandfather in the rapture of his prayer, speaking to God, crying, I don't want your heaven, I don't want your garden of Eden, I don't want your infinite light, I only want you, you alone. What is essence? For one thing, it's beyond light. Light is beautiful, but you can get caught up in the light. The mind loves light because light brings knowledge of things yet unknown. Emotions come into harmony when there is light. Your thoughts make sense when light shines through them and your words are well received when they are crafted as tight packets of light. Not the light that shines through the window, not the light that shines from a bulb, more like the light that flashes in your mind as an insight, an ingenuity, a crazy new idea. As trees reach ever upward towards the sunshine, so all healthy human beings strive towards light. So the Kabbalists called God the infinite light, because what could be higher than infinite light? Kabbalah speaks of merging with the light, drawing down the light, shining with the light. Everything starts with light. But no, God is not light. Light is about something that thing, whatever it is, that the light reveals. But God? God just is. Yes, God chooses that there should be light and that the light should speak of an existence beyond itself, of its luminary, the source of light. Like it says, and he saw the light that it was good. But it would be a mistake to call God even a source of light. He's not a luminary like the sun or the stars. He has no need to shine light. And in all the light that could ever shine, he can't be known. For you, David sang in his psalms, darkness is light and light is darkness. Indeed, Maimonides writes, all things that we experience, all creations, are contingent beings. There's no reason that light must be, or that matter must be, or that physics or mathematics or logic or any form of being must be. But God, he is absolute being. That's what Rabbi Schneir Zalman wanted to touch. And the Baal Shem Tov told him that it was attainable. Where? In a simple mitzvah of a simple Jew done with no other motive other than, this is what God wants me to do. So the Rebbe's Chassidim found you could uncover that simple Jew, simple mitzvah combo on Fifth Avenue. In Chabad parlance, we call this Atmos. That's just a convenient term for God in the raw. Not his light, not his thoughts, not his desires, just him. You can't describe God's atmos. 
You can't even talk about it in negative terms to say, in his essence, he is not this or not that. Even Maimonides' absolute existence is a compromise. Yet we stood there at the Rebbe's Verbrengens in 770 and witnessed the Rebbe sobbing at the mention of the Atmos of God. No thought can grasp him, the Rebbe would say, citing the Zohar. And yet he is grasped in the desire of the heart to bond with him. But no, that's not yet him. Not him in his atzmus, because there is a heart and there is a desire. And if there is something else other than just him, it can't be atzmus, because essentially there is nothing else but him. So he is grasped in total devotion and absence of any sense of self, just to do his will, especially when his will is not your will, when you don't feel like doing it, when you don't understand why you should do it, when you have no desire, no pleasure, and it should be utterly impossible for you to do it. And yet something much deeper inside, far more essential, more fundamental to you even than your own will, something there emerges And you do his will nonetheless, because it is his will. And yet, not even in that is his atzmus, because even there, there is him and there is you doing his will. But in the raw physical act of a mitzvah, just that it was done, in that there is nothing else but him. So again, a complete reversal to the philosophers, to the ethicists, to the Kabbalists, to all who explain the meaning and purpose of mitzvahs throughout the ages. The crucial, central element of any mitzvah was its kavanah, the mental and emotional focus you invested in that mitzvah. Rabbi Chaim ibn Attar, several students of the Baal Shem Tev, and Rabbi Shneir Zalman himself cite the sages. The origin of the saying seems to have been lost. As saying, a mitzvah without kavana is like a body without a soul. But that's all speaking about light. Here we're speaking about essence, atzmus, God himself. If you can approach it with your mind, touch it with your heart, it's not the essence. That essence, that you can only touch with your hands. Think physical. We said God is not light because he's not about anything. He just is. Words and thoughts are about something. Emotions are about something. Intellect is about something. Even desire is about something. What do you know that is not about anything at all, that just is? Matter. Plain, simple matter as it's experienced in our universe. Of course, it's an illusion. We all know that matter is sustained from moment to moment by a perpetual dynamic of energy. But in the subjective experience of a human being, matter is stuff that just is. And so is a simple mitzvah. The leather box with scrolls inside was on the table. Now it's on your head. The candles on your Shabbat table were unlit. Now they are burning. The matzah that lay on your table on the night of Passover have now been eaten. The shofar was blown, and you heard. Your stomach remained empty on Yom Kippur. Perhaps you had kavana, perhaps you didn't. It's a mitzvah, and the mitzvah was done. 
With all the kavana in the world, there would be no mitzvah without the action of doing it. But if the action was done, even without an ounce of feeling or sense of meaning, a mitzvah was done. Did you give God something he didn't have before? Yes, because he desired that you exist as an embodiment of his desire and love, and he desired that you do this mitzvah with a desire that contains all his essence, and it was done. Why does he so desire? He can desire whatever he wants, or not desire at all. He just is. And that's where a mitzvah comes from. Him as he just is. And that is why the most crucial element of a mitzvah is just that it is done. And most often with physical material that appears to be a thing that just is. And best done by a Jew who does this mitzvah just because it is a mitzvah. In the physical world, in a simple mitzvah, essence meets essence. <laughs> this is only where it begins. When in all preceding generations the focus was entirely on light, then the ultimate fulfillment of that light was to enter into word and action. That was the greatness of learning, the intensity of light it attained as it burst its bounds and descended into action. But now our bodies and souls saturated with three and a half thousand years of that light. Now its actions turn to shine. How does action shine? How can, how can action inform kavana? How can the body inform the soul? It shares its sense of nothingness, its unique insight that there is nothing else but Him. And it reveals that atmos in Torah. It says, Dear, wonderful, deep emotions, precious and beautiful ideas, you shine such intense light, you speak so much, such wealth, but know that there is nothing about you that must be. Know that if God had so desired, he could have arranged his ideas in Torah in any way he so pleases. The meaning of his mitzvahs could have taken any form, or none at all. You are beautiful and precious only because he chose you to be so, because you are the light within which God in all his essence chose to let us touch him, to bond with him, to become one with him. That's called an essence light. In truth, essence should not be capable of shining in our world or in any world. There's no expression of the essence, no information to be radiated. But here it shines. It shines the light of a world yet to come.